Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Public Discourse, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. Today, we continue our series on American identity and culture. George Schuyler's novel, Black No More, first published in 1931. In the coming months, we'll discuss Albert Murray's South to a Very Old Place, William Alexander Percy's Lanterns on the Levee, and Norman Podhoritz's Making It. Our guest for this episode is my colleague here at Skidmore, Jennifer Delton. Jennifer is professor of history and holds a PhD in history from Princeton University. She teaches courses in U.S. history since the Civil War. Her work focuses on liberalism, race and ethnicity, civil rights, and business in the 20th century. She's the author of four books, including most recently, The Industrialists, How the National Association of Manufacturers Shaped American Capitalism, which came out from Princeton University Press in 2020. I'm very grateful to Jennifer for suggesting this wondrously inventive satirical novel. Welcome, Jennifer Delton, to Enduring Interest Podcast. It's great to to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So we are here to talk about George Schuyler's novel, Black No More, uh, out in 1931. Before we dive into the the novel and talk about its themes and characters, why don't you give us a brief uh, biographical sketch of this interesting character, George Schuyler. Yeah, uh, so George Schuyler uh, was an American journalist, uh, a writer, a social commentator. He was best known because he had a weekly column in the Pittsburgh Courier, which was uh, one of the most uh, prominent and respected Black newspapers in the United States. It was edited by a guy named Robert Van. And so that was, um, you know, the most of his um, work is actually for the Pittsburgh Courier. Uh, he also wrote for uh, American Mercury, which was edited by H.L. Minken. He wrote for The Nation. He wrote for The Crisis, which was the NAACP's magazine. He wrote for Negro Digest, The Washington Post. He was in Modern Age, uh, which was a um, conservative magazine. And and, and actually, you know, towards the end of his life, he was writing for the John Birch Society because he was a conservative. Just biographically, he was born in Providence, Rhode Island, and he grew up in Syracuse, New York. Uh, he was in the army. And then after um, he left the army and actually right before World War One, he left in 1915. He went to New York and um, took a series of odd jobs and ended up in Harlem in the 1920s. And so he's surrounded by all of that energy, a Garvey, he, you know, and, and he's dabbling at this. He stayed at a place where that was run by Garveyites, Garvey, uh, Marcus Garvey, the black nationalist. Socialists, he knows, he mixes with the communist. His first reporting job was for The Messenger, and that's a paper that was edited by A. Philip Randolph, who later became an important labor leader, and Chandler Owens. And though they were socialist at the time, and it was it tried to be a socialist newspaper. But he was always right from the get-go, very skeptical of any kind of 
utopian ideological vision of, of that order. He was um, became known as an iconoclast and a contrarian independent thinker. He was very critical of white racism, but he was equally critical of black civil rights groups and especially the infighting uh, in the black community. And he, so when he was writing for the Pittsburgh Courier and the um, people were talked about him as uh, kind of like a black H.L. Mencken. And then Mencken uh, read his work, H.L. Uh, Mencken, the acerbic uh, ironist who uh, was the editor, I think of the Baltimore Sun, read his, he caught the eye of H.L. Mencken. And that's when H.L. Mencken asked him to um, contribute to the American Mercury. And um, there were a couple of, things he wrote that I, I should mention here to, to give some context. He, I think, became most famous for writing Negro Art Hokum, and he wrote that in the Nation magazine in 1926. And the idea there was he was very critical of the way that the Harlem Renaissance artists had embraced this African identity as some kind of Black identity. And he made fun of it. And, and he also thought that it was merely reinscribing racist attitudes of Blacks as primitive and as from Africa. And he said, you know, Black Americans are more American than they are African. And this is kind of a, an affectation. Um, and that the nation, um, you know, published that, but asked other Black leaders' opinions. And Langston Hughes responded in a much more famous essay, uh, which was the Negro artist in the racial mountain where Langston Hughes really struggles with this question, you know, do, do I want to be at what he used at the time the word was do I want to be a Negro writer or do I want to be an American writer and, and, you know, really struggled with that, whereas Schuyler had just mocked the uh, whole idea of an African identity. Was the Langston piece sort of explicitly hostile to, to Schuyler? I, no, you know, it's interesting. When I first, I, I was familiar with the Langston Hughes piece because that's very famous. Um, and he doesn't even mention Schuyler, mm. but he does, uh, or at least, you know, so he's just, you know, phrases it as this is something that all Black artists are going to have to deal with. So he doesn't explicitly call out Schuyler, but it's, it's So you wouldn't even know necessarily that it was a response to him. Yeah, I, I don't think... When I initially first read that piece, I did not know. Oh, okay. Um, so, speeding up uh, to after World War II, he became an avid anti-communist and a conservative. He was an admirer of Alfred J. Nock, who he called a great individualist. He loved the philosophy of uh, the individualist. And he wrote for the John Birch Society. He published his autobiography, uh, which is called Black and Conservative in 1966. Um, nothing good to say about uh, the civil rights movement at that time. You know, still very skeptical of um, all Black leaders and especially, of course, the Black nationalists. Interesting. So yeah. one more thing. So he becomes conservative. <laughs> uh, just to note, he did marry Josephine Lewis Cogdell, who was a uh, white, Texas heiress. Uh, Josephine Cogdell's parents were Texas ranchers. She never told them that she was married to a Black man. She kind of just disappeared from that family. They married in 1928, and there were a series of newspaper stories about the interracial marriage and how it was going. Um, and, and she was an artist. She was a bohemian. She had been in Hollywood as a Max Senek girl, and then she tried to be a writer. So she was an interesting character in her own right. They had a daughter, uh, Philippa Schuyler, who was um, a child prodigy. 
with math and and then a pianist and went on to be you know played in the numerous orchestras so you know he had an interesting family background and that and that does go along with his like the themes in black no more i mean his, his great faith was that you know we could end the races altogether through intermarriage and interracial fraternization right right uh, so yeah the interesting long long life as i said with with interesting twists and turns but maybe one continuity over time is this consistent suspicion of hostility to the self-described leaders of of the african community or african-american community so yeah um and there's a lot you I mean you mentioned that he he knew garveyites and did he did he meet garvey himself yeah i think he might have um i I think he met Garvey. Uh, So he would have, and just to mention for the listeners, uh, he was born in 1895 and died in 1977. Okay, yeah. To give you a sense of his lifespan. Yeah, there are, I mean, as we'll talk about in a a few minutes, some of these people he he either knew through correspondence or or knew personally are are skewered in, in the novel. He takes great pleasure in creating these these characters that uh, are based fairly obviously on <laughs> on historical figures so we'll we'll yeah. talk about that in a minute so as i said the the novel black no more is published 1931 maybe jennifer you could you could say a few things just about the initial reception of the book yeah um the initial reception um in the black press was mostly positive. There, there were some people who quibbled, but Pittsburgh Courier, Amsterdam News, they all saw it as very radical, that it challenged the whole concept of uh, racial purity and uh, the, the idea of um, you know scientific racism at that time, that there was any fundamental basis for believing in race. So people who read the book took it as it's very radical. The more mainstream press, like the New York Times, was um, they wanted they said you know it's funny, but they they had quibbles about it. They didn't um, they didn't love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the white press didn't love it, but they all kind of uh, said here's what's positive about it, but it fails to do this. But I was more interested in, in the black press being very much uh, in support of it and and kind of struggling with it. And the black press went out of its way uh, to say the black press went out of its way to say that, oh, you know, Du Bois isn't offended. Walter White is not offended. They're all they all took it in good stride. They can take a joke. You know, so there was a lot of uh, people are not upset with Schuyler, but then other people were upset with Schuyler. And that, too, was reported in the black press. But the book, um, you know, continued to be published. It did go out of print. I'm not quite sure when, um, but. It has been, uh, it was revived again in the 1990s. There was an edition where Ishmael Reed gave it a new introduction. And, yeah, I read uh, that introduction. That was very interesting. And he's, he, Ishmael Reed says in that intro, right, that he got uh, some, some angry letters from even visiting Schuyler, that he, people were mad at him for, for going to see this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, obviously after, you know, once he becomes a conservative, his that's when all the stuff goes out of print and he's just seen as irrelevant but in the 90s they bring him back so let's let's talk about the plot of of the book it is a fairly quick quick read it's not a particularly long novel a couple hundred pages depending on the the edition i would say there there's you know two kind of main characters that you you follow throughout but there are lots of interesting characters surrounding these these central figures 
Um, it's not a particularly complicated book, but it's, uh, I would say it's a fascinating satire and in places just laugh out loud funny. I think it's also an ingenious, pretty ingenious in terms of plotting and, you know, bringing the action of the book, moving the action of the book forward, which I didn't, which I didn't expect when I picked the book up. Um, so yeah, just give us a, a kind of basic sketch of, of the, of the action of the book, you know, the main characters, who they are and, and, and what happens to them. So Dr. Junius Crickman, who's black, invents this machine that can transform uh, African-Americans into whites. And hilarity ensues as those people who are most invested in race, and that would be white supremacists, but also black leaders, especially black nationalists, grapple with the disappearance of blackness, um, which turns out to have been part and parcel of whiteness. Um, the story follows. Harlem Denison's Max Disher, uh, who after he becomes white, his name is uh, Matt Fisher, uh, and he's got this pal, Bunny Brown, and once they get white, they start, they get things, they uh, get, first of all, they're in, because they're Harlem characters, they're kind of these, you know, guys about town, kind of uh, uh, schemers, and the first thing they're interested in is getting white women who have denied them, but they're also interested in power and money. Matt Fisher ends up helping uh, the white supremacist groups uh, who are very alarmed at the spreading of this um, a technique to turn black people into white. They wanna stop it. And so he offers to help them stop it. And, and, and so those are kind of loosely the main characters and, and the book follows them through their adventures and uh, the way the world changes as black people disappear and become white. Good. Yeah. And then just to, to pick up the plot, then right, Matt, uh, Matt now Matt Fisher uh, just decides that he's going to get a job working for the Knights of Nordica, which is this white supremacist, white race, purity organization. Um, and so the, I think the main characters are presented as, you know, as hustlers out to make make money and and uh, do good yeah. for themselves. The book does a great job of of portraying, I would say, the diverse effects of the disappearance of of blacks, what that would mean in in society. So he talks about what that that meant um, for the banks in Harlem at the beginning yeah. of the book. <laughs> he talks about what it what it means. Um, once Crookman, you know, quickly it has, you know, it starts out as he's got this one location in New York, but within a couple of years, right, he's got these sanitariums across the nation that are being flooded with, with people. And, and so the, the National Social Equality League, which is the principal black organization starts to have trouble raising money because there's no, there's yeah. no blacks to worry about. And that organization is, is the national is the NAACP. Right headed uh by dr shakespeare agamemnon beard yes <laughs> who, who is w.e.b du bois w.e.b du bois uh he you know he gets kind of skewered in in the book which which is interesting and i think it speaks well to du bois that he says he liked the book and um you know spoke well of spoke well of the novel despite the fact that he's skewered pretty <laughs> pretty oh, heavily. totally skewered yeah. uh in in every which way you know the uh, you know, his European background, how he, he claims to love black culture um, and, the, and the lowly uh, black worker, although he has nothing to do with them, you know, and he prefers it that way. I mean, he really takes on Du Bois for um, Du Bois's more European-like uh, pretensions. 
Right. We'll talk about, I, I want to get to the, the end of the, the, the sort of shockingly ingenious end of the book when, when we get to the end of the conversation, but maybe we can go back and talk about a few of the, the moments in the, during, during the action of the book. The general question that I want to get at through some digging into some of the particular passages is Schuyler's view of, of race. It's fair to say, right, that he had no, that race was a kind of meaningful biological category. No. Is that, is that right? He believes race is an artificial construct. It's a fiction. It was invented so white people could feel better about themselves. And, and that, yeah, that there is nothing good about race. Uh, totally artificial. Okay. Um, and yeah. in this... He this view is coming around in the 1920s. You start to see this in the works of the anthropologist Franz Boas and Margaret Mead and some of those social scientists are looking at the ways that the concept of race is used to prop up white superiority. And um, and so he's he's not alone at this time in thinking about this in this way about race. He the novel what the novel does so well is to show all of these things that sociologists and anthropologists write about, like in terms of how the uh, African-American economy is, you know, based on the segregation and discrimination and that African-American culture is based on segregation and discrimination and that things that uh, white people see as how blacks are, are actually just based on this invented fiction of race. Okay, interesting. So then, yeah, then I, I found a striking passage in the near the beginning of the book. It's in it's in the second chapter. So it's after Max undergoes his operation to become white. And initially, you know, he's he's parading around New York City and, you know, enjoying the fact that he's not he's not being looked at strangely or discriminated yeah. against in any way but then he walks into a nightclub and uh and you get this little passage he says despite his happiness uh, max found it pretty dull there was something lacking in these ofe places of amusement or else there was something present that one didn't find in the black and tan resorts in harlem the joy and abandon here was obviously forced Patrons went to extremes to show each other that they were having a wonderful time. It was also strained and quite unlike anything to which he had been accustomed. The Negroes, it seemed to him, were much gayer, enjoyed themselves more deeply, and yet they were more restrained, actually more refined. Even their dancing was different. Mm -hmm. So he does seem to want to bring out something, I guess, meaningful in the response of African-Americans to the context of discrimination, right? That they, they live their lives differently and he has his main character kind of reflect on this. Yeah, uh, it's, that is a really key piece because I, you know, he, he, um, he loves Harlem. And in the first pages of the book where he's describing, he's introducing Max Disher and Bunny Brown, you know, they're in Harlem and he talks about how many shades, the chromatic diversity, the chromatic democracy that exists in Harlem. There are people that are yellow and brown and black, and he's got all these shades of people and they're full of life and so much is happening. And just the way, you know, he uses all the slang, it's like a Damon Runyon 
you know, Bunny Brown is always say not so. And, you know, right. when Bunny Brown is asked a question like, is she black? Oh, she ain't no Caucasian. I'll tell you that. Right. And, you know, he's just got this incredible um, joy and gaiety and in, in, in portraying Harlem be, when it's black. And and then once people become all white, you lose a little bit of that. And so I think Skyler is himself kind of um, understands or is grappling with this. You know, maybe there is something about, but he he wouldn't say that that um, uh, spirit, that liveliness, that love of life, that he would not say that's due to blackness. He would think that is due to cosmopolitanism. That's mm. you get that when people of different races mix. It's the racial mixing that creates this energy that is life. And so in a weird way, the book says that is what has to be sacrificed in order to get rid of the, uh, really what he's saying, what we need to get rid of is white supremacy. We have to get rid of this idea of racial purity. And so let's just make this machine, uh, we'll just erase this whole concept of race, but it's not as though that's a happy thing as the passage you just read showed, you know, there's gonna be a sacrifice here. And even Flag, you know, he has that, um, the contraption by which uh, the black people are turned white, it's, it's an electric chair. It's, it's, right. like, it's like this really painful thing they have to go through and then they have to recover in the hospital because it's such a horrible experience. Right. And it almost is like, you know, you could say, you know, he, you're killing something here. You're killing something when you transform black people into white people. Um, but what you're getting is the end of white supremacy and the end of discrimination and the end of uh, the oppression. Um, and so that's what I think is so smart about this book is that, yeah, he you, there is something that is lost here. This obviously is not an ideal world that comes to be. Uh, you know, it's, um, it is interested in what you give up. I want to connect what you just said to about cosmopolitanism with some of the passages that he, in which he describes the effect once, once this operation becomes more and more prevalent and, and Crookman the, uh, the appropriately named Crookman is making tons of money and, and flourishing. We meet, uh, af after that, we meet uh, Sandtop Licorice, <laughs> who is Marcus Garvey, and right, and his Back to Africa organization is not thriving <laughs> because right. no one wants to go back to, to Africa anymore. And so he, there, I just wanted to read one, one passage where, where he's, you know, skewering the self-described Black leaders. He says, this is in chapter, let's see, chapter five. He says, the Negro politicians in the various black belts grown fat and sleek, protecting vice with the aid of Negro votes, which they were able to control by virtue of housing segregation, lectured in vain about black solidarity, race pride and political emancipation, but nothing stopped the exodus to the white race. Gloomily, the politicians sat in their offices wondering whether to throw up the sponge and hunt the nearest black no more sanitarium or hold on a little longer in the hope that the whites might put a stop to the activities of Dr. Crookman and his associates. And he talks about the usual sources of graft vanishing 
Mm-hmm. But then, but then connecting, you know, so all, so all this is, you, you could almost read it as him kind of laughing at the, at, at the fact that these black politicians and, and leaders of the race, right, are losing their, their hustle in a way. Yeah. Right? Um, but then to, just to your point about cosmo- cosmopolitanism, he says a little further, he says, gone was the almost European atmosphere mm-hmm. of every Negro ghetto, the music, laughter, gaiety, jesting and abandon. Instead, one noted the same excited bustle, wild looks, and strained faces to be seen in a wartime soldier camp mm-hmm. around a new oil district or before a gold rush. The happy-go-lucky Negro of song and story was gone forever, and in his stead was a nervous, money-grubbing Black stuffing away coin in socks, impatiently awaiting the sufficient sum to pay Dr. Crookman's fee. Yeah, they become right. materialist and money grubbing. Yeah, so uh, and yeah, no. For someone who doesn't believe in great in in race, he does you know kind of traffic in these stereotypes uh, in terms of, for him, whiteness is you know the the capitalist pursuit of money, which by the way is very much how Du Bois characterized white Americans is that it's the land of the almighty dollar. They'll do everything for a do- anything for a dollar. And that kind of consumerism and capitalism is what takes the joy out of life because you always got to be working, working. And, you know, saving their money in a sock is great because that's, you know, the you know Protestant work ethic right there. Um, and for some reason, I'm just having total brain fog right now. So he, he right. So he does have this uh, concept of of whiteness that way that it is. But here's the other thing is that in this world, everyone is a grifter. And that, you know, all of the characters are grifters. They're always looking for the, the money. They always have a hustle going on. Everyone has a hustle. So it's almost as if it's weird that he says that about the white world, that it's more capitalist, but even the way he talked about the white world as more interested in thrift rather than hustle is, you know, kind of a shade of a difference there. But because basically in the world that he um, presents to us, everyone has a hustle and the whole concept of race enables all of these hustles. But then, you know, then you have the machine, then everyone tries to get in on that as well. Yeah, so so the white supremacist race purity people are portrayed as having this hustle. I mean, they get their comeuppance at the end of the book, which which we'll talk about. Agamemnon Beard has his hustle. Santop Licorice has his hustle, right? I mean, he's he's really funny on on the Licorice, the Garvey character. He said, you know, he says Licorice says for fifteen years advocating, <laughs> been advocating for sending people back to Africa. And then he says, but he had not the slightest intention of going there himself. And he made a lot of money from people, you know, paying their $5 membership due, you know, so it's just, he doesn't, he doesn't give any of these people any credit whatsoever for, I don't know, trying to do anything other than, than make, make money off, off the the concept of race, I guess. Yes, that is it. And he does. And I, I like when he talks about the urban league. Uh, people and he, and he, there are several times where he uh, talks about data collecting and the, you know collecting bales of data to prove more money was necessary to collect more data, and most of the data revealed the amazing fact that poor people went to jail oftener than rich ones. Most people were not getting enough money for their work, and strangely enough, there was a connection between poverty, disease, and crime. 
And then he, and he said for his people, he wanted work, not charity, but for himself, he was always glad to get the charity and as little work as possible. And, um, you know, he goes on like that. He, he just skewers. Uh, and that's really one of the joys or the fun thing about reading this book in terms of African-American history is there's this inside baseball on all of these uh, characters, some of that whom I, I can't even um, identify. But the thing about Walter White, uh, who who really was, um, he was uh, head, of, uh, head of the NAACP during this time. And he has that line about Walter White was known to be of Negro background, but you you couldn't know it and you, you wouldn't have known it to look at him. Yeah. So let's we can while you look for that, maybe I'll move us along yeah. in the plot a little bit. And so um, the the middle of the book is is taken up by describing, as, as we've discussed, the effects of the success of Black No More, Crookman's enterprise, mm-hmm. Blacks are disappearing. And so he describes kind of the panicked white supremacist and the panicked Black leaders writing to Congress, writing to the president, trying to get them to stop Crookman's enterprise to no avail. Mm-hmm. Then he reveals the detail that the one problem with <laughs> this operation is that does not prevent your children from being born black. So once these people have children, right, it will be revealed that they have they have black um, ancestry. And of course, the main we, we should have said the main character, Matthew Fisher, ends up marrying Helen, who shows up in a Harlem club at the beginning of the book and rejects Max because he's black. He ends up marrying her and she is the daughter of Mr. Givens, who heads this um, white supremacist Knights of of Nordica. He marries her and then she is eventually with child. And so Matthew Fisher then is is forced to reckon with the fact that once the child is born, this black baby is gonna emerge and Helen is gonna be very, very confused. Once that happens, the the plot starts to, to gain some steam. People, I I would say the Knights of, of, of Nordica and then another, a uh, white supremacist organization called the Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon Association of North America. Their response is to, in a way, fix the problem by trying to identify a, a kind of hyper-pure white race. So in other words, now that everything, every everyone is white, we'll try to defend whiteness by going through people's ancestral records Right and trying to determine, you know, the, these people have been white since the 11th century, and they're the tr- they're the only true whites, and they're the people who should rule the country. And so the the Anglo-Saxon Association of America hires a social scientist yeah. who's an expert in ancestry, Dr. Samuel Buggery, to do this research yes, yes. into ancestry. And guess what? Dr. Buggery recover, uh, discovers that no one is actually very purely white. Almost yeah. everyone has some degree of blackness in their past or Native American or th- there's mm-hmm. been basically the discovery is there's been mixing going on forever. These people, th- these people are doing this research. Buggery does the research. But once he makes this this unfortunate discovery from the white supremacist standpoint, that research is stolen Mm -hmm. by the Republican Party. (laughs) And, you know, press releases are are written 
and and uh, it, and it's basically the basis for the Republicans winning the the election of nineteen is it nineteen thirty no nineteen forty right yeah forget the no. the action of the book mm-hmm. um so any I I guess Jennifer any thoughts on the sort of plot development and and um what Skyler's trying to to reveal in the sort of a last third of the of the yeah. book. Well, well, that just uh, kind of takes it to its logical conclusion that, you know, that human beings tend to need to divide themselves by color. So they make up these fictions um, to uh, base their uh, elite status on some kind of color. And, and he's skewing all of that. But I should also say, going back to your point about the black babies that are being born, you know, this is really um, I think it's really important to remember you know, the 1920s are really the height. This is the revived Ku Klux Klan is mm. um, is active. Uh, a lot of politicians uh, are, are in the Ku Klux Klan, even in northern states like Indiana and Pennsylvania. Um, and that whole, um, you know, the Anglo-Saxon, the, the buggery and the snobcraft, those guys, the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon Association of American, you know, that those are the scientific racism. Uh, and and right. they are of a little higher class than the Knights of Ortica, Nordica. But he um, that organization is also interested in racial purity. And so miscegenation and interracial sex and the polluting of the race, you know, this is a theme that is very much behind uh, the lynching and Jim Crow and the maintenance of white supremacy in the South, but also even in the North, there are states with anti-miscegenation laws uh, around the country. It's not just a Southern thing. And so he really is, um, this is the type of thing people can get lynched for, uh, even talking about this in a, a comical light. So I think when people at the time talked about this book as being radical, um, it was because he was willing to skewer this and then have this situation um, happen, where of course they're going to be these babies. And, and so that right there, that whole um, episode, um, is very much him trying to get, I, yeah, like, what is he trying to do here? He's certainly just uh, dismantling and poking fun at this miscegenation and the whole concept of racial purity and the whole idea that, you know, oh, it turns out, and I think even there's what the uh, buggery discovers is that the people who have been transformed from black to white are even whiter in appearance than the regular white people because right. of this racial impurity thing. Um, and so it reminds me a little bit, I don't know if you remember that book by Dr. Snooze about the sneezers and the, you know, uh, this is really the um, substance of a lot of anti-racist literature in the 1950s and 1960s about the meaninglessness uh, of race. You know, it's just, it's these are just stories we tell ourselves. That was really the basis of the anti-racist movement beginning in the 1940s. And so he's he's very much a part of that. Just anyone who believes that there is such a thing as a pure race, that's what he's taking down. And I do wanna read the just the dedication to the book because this is it. He says, this book is dedicated to all Caucasians in the great Republic who can trace their ancestry back 10 generations and confidently assert that there are no black leaves twigs, limbs, or branches on their family trees, you know, and that, and that's, um, that's what this is up to. And so all of this 
you know, he just tries to find these situations again and again, where what happens if you are unable to maintain those racial lines, then how can you do what you've always done, uh, which is separate and oppress people? So he does, you didn't mention the whole union campaign where uh, Matt Fisher has to go in there. And, um, you know, what what, what happens if employers can't pit black workers against white workers anymore? So uh, Matt Disher is going in there. And then they try to use race baiting because that's how employers try to prevent unions by saying, well, we're going to hire black workers but then they don't know. I think they, the, um, the, you know, Matt Fisher is able to play again, both ends in order to maintain the status quo. His thugs convince other employees that the leader is really a converted Negro and no one could prove anyone otherwise. So like the, the kind of race baiting that structured economic life really in the North and the South is dismantled if you take away race. And so that is really what he's trying to expose here. Yeah, that's excellent. I'm glad you brought up that chapter on on unions. That was an interesting, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe one one thing we should um, kind of mention as kind of comprehensive comment about the novel is just how comprehensive the novel is in its concerns. I mean, you you get reflection on unions, you get reflections on the different, kind of race hustlers, the white supremacists and the back to Africa people. I mean, the more the more respectable black leaders like Du Bois, I guess you would say they he gets skewered. You get reflections on uh, race and, and work and unions. Uh, and then near the end of the book, you get reflections on the kind of the dynamics of the party system. Mm. Um, there's a skewering of of uh, we'll go back to some of these passages. Um, the a really, a really um, I think insistent skewering of social science. I, I would just like to, you know, underscore your point that he is looking at all of the ways that this belief in the fiction of race structures our economics, um, our social mores, uh, ideas about chivalry and white womanhood. He is skewering the, uh, and so in a weird way, uh, he does show just how much. American culture, economy, and politics are based on race and what happens when you take them uh, away. Mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. you take, when you take, when you remove race from that. Right. Very good. Then, just to say a few things about the comic end of the of the novel, you have Buggery, uh, the the social scientist hired by the Anglo-Saxon Association of America, the the head of it, Snobgraft. They are on the run because their secret is out. I think they decide that the the best because of the because of the success of Black No More, they would be better off Being as black. blacks. Yes. So, so they say so they black blackface themselves, yes. but they end up in a part of Mississippi that is still untouched by right. this organization. So they're they're about to be lynched, and then of course they say we're not black. You know, we're we're really white. You know, look at I think they take their their underclothes off so they can see their their yes. white skin. Then someone runs up with a newspaper though and and explains the discovery that as you as you alluded to a few minutes ago that it's actually the 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 whitest white people who have probably had this operation who are therefore black. So so then now they're in trouble because they seem to be very white. Um, and so it's it's just it's just a, an astonishingly inventive, funny 
kind of conclusion to this rollicking yeah. strange book. And there are, well, it's actually a pretty gruesome lynch scene when they get lynched too. Yes. You know, I mean, <laughs> Very it's, gruesome. it's, it's, it's horrible. It's the whole, it's the whole thing. And then he says, he describes in that as those, um, as buggery and snobcraft who are the Anglo-Saxon committee are uh, getting lynched. He says that there are some whitened Negroes in the crowd who aren't getting into the festivities as much as the others. And that gives them away. So they start yelling and prodding the bodies with gusto as well. And this exhibition restored them to favor and banished any suspicion that they were not 100% American. So, um, you know, he says at the end, also the new prejudice was against the most pale people. The new Caucasians resented the curious gazes on their pale skin. And they wrote about the insults and discrimination that they were um, experiencing because they were whiter than everyone else. Right, right. Um, and, and then there's the new down with white prejudice league that's founded to stop uh, discrimination against the lightest skinned people. And it's led by the same old race leaders. And then, you know, he talks about, um, we didn't mention Ciceretta Blandish, who is based on Madam C.J. Walker, who, you know, had the original um, hair care that was about kink no more, which ah. is, uh, right, right, you know, right. she had the black makeup line. She was, you know, the first black millionaire. Um, but here she is, the former Ciceretta Blandish is looking into skin stains to darken up people. And then his happy ending is, you know, as a result, America was definitely enthusiastically mulatto minded. Uh, and so if you're like looking like what is the ideal world here, if you want to take away from race, it's, you know, this, you know, we're all mulattoes now. I mean, it's um, that's. Yeah, yeah. That's his solution. And the and the main character, Matthew Fisher, right? Once that once his black baby is born, at first Helen thinks it's is the result of her ancestry because it's been revealed, right, that now we right. all have this black and and then but he says, No, 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 it's me. I'm I've had this operation. So he he openly takes responsibility for it and they decide to leave and go to, to Europe and and I guess live happily, <laughs> happily ever after. So yeah, and they are all. I mean, at the end, there's that scene uh, and that one line where he, uh, you know, they recognize that. Well, basically, you know, and one of them says, um, I mean, you had the quote uh, earlier. Uh, I guess you know we're all the N word now. And then one of the that and corrects him and says, Negro. Which again, just to remind our listeners, Negro was the common, uh, the respectable term for right. people of African descent, uh, and so you still have that um, political correctness going on there, uh, even though everyone is happily mulatto-minded. I guess apart, apart from what we might know about Schuyler's journalistic career and kind of his thinking, you know, later on, what would you? I think there there are kind of two two obvious possibilities in terms of how to interpret the book right one way would be that the the novel is is meant to elicit a kind of knowing pessimism right that we're all race obsessed in the country and but there's really not much to be done about it right he he, he i guess the, the 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 important detail if you're going to interpret the book in that way would be the development of and that that takes place in the last third of the novel that you know it 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 
it turns out that everything just is flipped and it's now the, the purest whites who are going to be under suspicion and we're going to discriminate against them. And then you have this woman, like you just mentioned, who's going to sell products to successfully blacken people. And so in that sense, the, the book would seem to say, no matter what we do, human beings are just going to flock to the idea of race. And it's, it's just, it's bad. <laughs> there's, there's just not much to be done about it. Um, on the other hand, right, you, you might say, well, he, Schuyler thinks it's possible to really shake people out of their attachment to race and racial prejudice by pointing out the ridiculousness of all of it. So I guess what, I mean, what direction would you go in and in, in thinking about the, the takeaway from, from the book? Yeah, I do think it's a, it's a bit of both. Um, he's um, notoriously cynical uh, about any efforts to, to try to solve social problems. Um, yeah. So the, he, and, and so he's somewhat pessimistic about that, but he, actually his whole life, he really is involved in um, a fight against the concept of racial purity. You know, and that's one of the reasons I pointed out that he's married to this white woman and the newspapers do stories about the, their interracial marriage. Uh, and he, he makes the argument that it's the cross fertilization of races and ethnic groups that is that gives us uh, the energy and the dynamism that will make the human race better. And in that, he echoes a lot of um you know, people he doesn't like, he doesn't like social scientists, but they are actually saying that, I mean, or even people like Randolph Byrne, who's another uh, political commentator at this hmm. time, uh, Margaret Mead, uh, the anthropologist, there is this celebration that diversity is something good. It's the lifeblood of a nation. You can't, you know, you get stale if you just try to preserve racial purity, then, you know, that's a, a dead end street. Uh, you, you adapt and grow uh, and, and develop and are alive through um, you know, racial mixing and cultural mixing and intermixing and that that, and, and so he really is echoing the development of um, anti-racism in the 1940s. Uh, and this, again, I, this is people like uh, Franz Boas, who's uh, at Columbia University and, and his student is Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, even people like Robert Park at, at the University of Chicago, Malinowski, Margaret Mead, uh, they're arguing that, that race doesn't matter. Uh, and therefore, we need to remove any kind of discrimination in law. Uh, and so the whole focus of the civil rights movement is to skewer this concept of race. At this time, the civil rights movement wants to remove race from public uh discourse in terms of it shouldn't it, it, to get a job it shouldn't matter what race you are you know before the law it shouldn't matter what race we should be colorblind that mm -hmm. is what this uh era of um anti-racism looks like and that is the basis of this early civil rights movement and now as you know that idea has fallen out of favor but it's really important to remember that at the time when he's writing race matters race really matters and so people who want to fight discrimination and racial oppression their first tact is try to say look race is artificial mm -hmm. uh, and so he is very much part of the anti-racist movement, even though I think he himself would, you know, not like that description. 
uh, right, of himself because right. he doesn't he doesn't see himself this way. Um, he you know he's not a fighter for justice in particular, but he is always very critical of um, white racism and white supremacy. Uh, very critical of it, and particularly critical of the idea of, of racial purity. So I I don't. I think that's the context here for the book. So it actually is trying to intervene, or it actually does intervene in ways that suggest that there is indeed hope that if we can just recognize how artificial and what the what the hustle is here, then we can relieve ourselves of the burden of having to maintain these racial lines. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we need to do. And so he is very much in alignment with Uh, the anti-racist movement that is going to develop in the 1940s, which is, you know, again, very hard to understand then how he comes to be writing for the John Birch Society. Right. Uh, And that, I mean, that, that leads to another question about him speaking to today's concerns about race. I mean, in in a way you you could say this, this is going to sound a little strange and crass, but not much has changed, right? You have Black Lives Matter, you have the QAnon sort of weird white supremacy going on on the on the far right. Mm-hmm. You have the rise of um, Ibram X Kendi on the one hand, and then I think the increasing um, prominence of people like John McWhorter, right, is recently given a New York Times column. I guess not that recently; that was six months ago or so. So, I guess how how do you think Skyler might fit into the contemporary discourse about race. I mean, there are, there are a few, I guess, what you'd call race abolitionists around. There's a guy named Camille Foster, who I think is a really interesting writer. So I think he would, maybe he knows about, about Schuyler in this book, but I think there are people around who would glom onto this book and be eager to, to think, think it through if, if, if they, if they're aware of him. So. Yeah. You know, I almost wish Skyler was around to write a book um, about Kendi, about Kendi, and yeah, Nick Fuentes, and all these. I mean, you could just imagine there's there's a lot of um, pretty easy targets for for a satirist who's actually willing to to take on the the, the race obsessed people in our time. Oh, absolutely. I mean that that is exactly right. He would have you know with Beverly D'Angelo, all of them, uh, and it it gets um, so yeah. He, he would have no patience with any of the race leaders. He would reduce them quickly to what, what is their grift? What are they doing? It's a hustle. Um, because he, um, you know, I think, and this is what, he does seem to want to kind of have an organic kind of cosmopolitanism. I think that's what he really wants. And so he'd be critical of everything that's happening now. In terms of how people now might read it, you know, this, um, it was made into a play in 2020 on Broadway, Black No More was, uh, hmm. by a Black choreographer, and it's a musical. And, and Did you I was, see it? What? Did you see it? No, I oh. haven't. And I read it, um, it was during COVID, so there were some problems with it. The I remember reading um, a review of it, and it, it is tricky. I, to me, you would have to change a lot in the book to make it acceptable to today's kind audience of any sort. You'd have to change quite a bit. Uh, and in fact, you know, in the book, Schuyler says, you know, the black folks, they're, they can't get enough whiteness. They fall all over it. They want to be white. And 
Uh, and he doesn't necessarily even criticize them for doing that. That's just kind of, you know, he's saying basically they're like any other person. They're going to do what they have to do to get the things they want. So um, he has no criticism. And I think that the director of the play on Broadway was, was struggling with that portrayal, um, yeah. not knowing what to do with people who uh, would want to become, with Black people who want to become white. I mean, how can you portray them in any way that, you know, that is is positive because it's such a, uh, um, a negative thing is viewed today. So I, I'm kind of interested in seeing it because, you know, on the, I actually have taught this um, in a class, I think about four years ago, I, or five years ago, I taught it. And even four year, five years ago was a different situation than we're in today. I don't know if I would do it today uh, just because of there's a lot of N-word. It's, um, and what actually that's what I love about this book. You, he really captures how much of American politics is based on color and ethnicity. And, you know, he's got the, you know, we didn't read this, but remember that passage where he's talking about the Jew who does this and, uh, and he's just basically calling upon all of these ethnic and cultural stereotypes because American politics was based on those different ethnic groups and everyone uh, indulged in those types of stereotypes and, and they were funny. Um, and so that's part of the, the richness and the life that he likes. And so he wants to, he wants to celebrate all of that. I think students have a harder time with that now, but they also understand, you know, that a belief in racial purity is something that belongs with the, you know, the Anglo-Saxon scientific racist crowd and the KKK. And to the extent that this is really a book that is skewering that whole concept of racial purity, students are open to it. I mean, it's a, and it's a thoroughgoing critique in, in a way better than Kendi or George Lipsitz or any of our anti-racist scholars today. You know, they talk about how you know, racism is structural and no one knows what that means. What it means is exactly what Schuyler has described in this book. It means that uh, markets are segmented by race. Uh, right. And it means that race uh, capitalists and employers exploit race to put people against each other and that blacks are always going to be the lowest paid. And here are the reasons for that. And he, he's, um, you know, he lays it out there if they ever want a description about how, what the structural racism looks like you could read this book because as you said it's it's racism embedded in every single part of American life. Uh, so he actually gets at even better than what Kendi is doing. You know, what Kendi's trying to do, Schuyler is able to show it in a way that students recognize. But you have to, you know, you take the rest of it too, the N-word and the, um, yeah, I mean, it's really, the, there are some really outrageous passages in there as well that it, it gets hard to, um, which is the appeal of the book because he's clearly pushing against, even in the 1930s, even in the 1920s, there's a, a version of political correctness and he's clearly pushing the, the boundaries of that in this book. Right. You know, when he describes the NAACP as, you know, they, they claim to uh, love uh, black people, but really they couldn't be happier than one who is being lynched so that they can rush in and save them and justify their existence. I mean, that, and he says it in much more colorful language than I just said that. Right. It, it's pretty outrageous. And so it's, it's, hard, it's hard for, I think, current students to, to grapple with that kind of language. Um, but the, uh, 
the larger point of the book is very timely today. And, and so I can see why the um, producers wanted to produce it on Broadway, but it, I can imagine they had to change a large part of the book. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's, it's too bad in a way, the kind of hyper sense, sensitivity, censorious world that we live in. I mean, this is in a way the precisely the kind of book you would hope that students would, one anyone would would read and precise not not only because it's it's kind of shocking but um because it kind of skewers everyone and and the success of it is because the satire you know no one is left untouched by the the satire so it kind of shakes shakes everyone and everything up in a way and forces you to you know to think through assumptions you know, even if you even if you you kind of realize, oh, this is this is skewering, you know, someone that I believe in, right? So, a, you know, a Garveyite might have read this and recognized that, oh gosh, this character is based on this guy I really admire. But, you know, since since the 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 satire is pointed at everyone and everything, I think it forces people to um, you know to take it seriously because they don't they they, they see that it's not one-sided in any way. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to kind of caricature or, or interpret in an obviously partisan, partisan way. So I, I guess I, I think it's precisely the kind of book you would hope that could be, you know, could be taught. And I mean, I think it's, it's dangerous for the reasons that you, <laughs> you've given, um, you know, I, I can imagine this creating all sorts of difficult problems for any faculty member on any on any campus um but in a way it's just it's so it's so funny and kind of deliciously ironic and and uh, targets targets everywhere that um it's it's the kind of book that should you know should students need to need to read and i guess i would say too there's no one i off the top of my head i can't think of another writer like this there are, know. I mean, Ishmael Reed, yeah, uh, very much of this, and uh, also there's a guy named Paul Beatty. I don't know if you've read his novel, The Sellout. No. Uh, so he's an African American writer too, and I mean, and and it's and actually, um, Beatty has spoken highly of Black No More as somewhat as a, a novel that did influence him, because you know when you look at Black literature, um, it's it's moving, it's big. It's dealing with these, you know, really uh, heavy issues, and and because of racial injustice and just the the bigness and the gravity of that idea that Black literature is dealing with, there is never any room for the kind of really humor and satire, and really the satire here, um, and that is what is different. And so Ishmael Reed. Um, you know, recognizes that in Schuyler and Paul Beatty recognizes that in Schuyler is that, you know, we make fun of ourselves all the time, but that's not what our literature is. And so one of the things that this, well, I think the significance of this book is that Schuyler takes it on. It's really easy to make fun of the KKK. It's easy to make fun of the Knights of Nordica. You know, I mean, those are things that white people are used to skewering, but to have someone skewer these um, 
you know, someone like Du Bois, uh, yeah. uh, you know, or James Baldwin, you know, it, it's like, how, or Martin Luther King, you know, you can't, how, you know, and, and Schuyler would say, well, what is the difference? I mean, why is there any reason why we as human beings cannot skewer the people who are our so-called our leaders? Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a significant part. And Paul Beatty is actually, uh, you should read that book, The Sellout, that, because you ask later on, are there books like this? It's a book that if you're white, you feel very uncomfortable laughing at. Okay. Because it's like this, I, I should not be reading this. I should not. And the other person is uh, James McBride. Uh, the, hmm. um, the good, what is it? The good Lord bird that was just made into a mini series. Those, those two writers are doing that where they, they take Frederick Douglass uh, McBride's book, the good Lord bird you know, portrays Frederick Douglass as this, um, not in a good light, uh, kind of a, a, um, a, a conniver, a, a schemer, and a, a kind of a lech at the same time. It's, um, it's a book about John Brown. Um, and it is playing with, again, the all of the, um, it's, it's skewering the idols of racial justice movements. Um, and so it's it's shocking to read, but that's I think that's the power of these books. Right. So James McBride and Paul Beatty, you said, and Ishmael yeah. Reed, those are the three authors you would say are kind of writing in a similar kind of genre vein to Schuyler. Yes, yeah. where they're they're um, skewering the um, you know the symbols of racial justice. I mean, Good Lord Bird is. <laughs> You know, John Brown is the abolitionist, and the main character in that book is uh, a slave person who John Brown liberates, but then John Brown puts him to work in his um, household, and he's working harder for John Brown, the abolitionist, than he ever worked for uh, his uh, the master that he right. was formerly enslaved to. <laughs> and it's like, John Brown is more demanding and requires me to do more things. Um, and then this is this character gets involved with Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Douglass is uh, seen as a very flawed, flawed human being. Mm. And um, it's uh, it's it's a very crazy book. And the sellout also, it's um, a hilarious book. It is yeah, I I certainly wouldn't be able to teach it. Although I believe Professor Stokes has taught it here at Skidmore. Ah, interesting. Um, before so I have one more question for you. But before we go, I wanted to read the my favorite passage in the book, which is the skewering of this statistician, social scientist Samuel Buggery. Um, I was looking for this earlier, and it's just too delicious not to mm. <laughs> not to read. So he says, uh, this man, Dr. Samuel Buggery, was highly respected among members of his profession and well-known by the reading public. He was the author of several books and wrote frequently for the heavier periodicals. Mm-hmm. His well-known work, The Fluctuation of the Sizes of Left Feet Among the Assyrians During the Ninth Century Before Christ, had been favorably commented upon by several reviewers, one of whom who had actually read it. Yeah. <laughs> An even more learned work of his was entitled Putting Wasted Energy to Work, in which he called attention by elaborate charts and graphs to the possibilities of harnessing the power generated by the leaves of trees rubbing together on windy days. Yeah. In several brilliant monographs, he had proved that rich people have smaller families than the poor, yeah. that imprisonment does not stop crime, that laborers usually migrate in the wake of high wages. 
His yes. most recent article in a very intellectual magazine read largely by those who loafed for a living had proved statistically that unemployment and poverty are principally a state of mind. This contribution was enthusiastically hailed by scholars and especially by businessmen as an outstanding contribution to contemporary thought. Yes. Oh, I mean, just yeah, so he, funny. He, he uh, yeah, the social scientists, the statisticians he hates. Um, I, he has a way. His sentences are are great. You know, they fought each other with a vigor only surpassed by that of their pleas for racial solidarity and unity. These are great sentences. And you're just going back to your point about is this a useful book to read today? It really get there's uh, in African American intellectual history. There's an ongoing debate about where. Black culture comes from? Is, is there something essential uh, to Black culture? Is there something necessarily connected to Africa about it? Is this an American creation? Is it uh, is Black culture and Black literature dependent on the uh, racial oppression in the United States of America? Is that the only, uh, is that how Black culture is formed? In which case is Black culture the product of the oppressive, uh, of the oppressor? Uh, so these, you know, and those are debates at the time in Harlem in the 1920s and the 1930s. There's still debates today, and he's engaging with that question, and and he comes down very much on the idea that the the black culture is entirely the product of uh, white supremacy. Interesting. So, uh, yeah. Maybe we can end on this. Any, you mentioned his memoir, Black and Conservative. You could say something about that that book if you think it's it's interesting and worth worth reading. But any other recommendations for um, what what to read by by Schuyler novels, um, essays? Yeah, you know he's it's it's interesting. He's a little bit like uh, Bill Buckley in this regard. He never really wrote like a, an impressive book that. Uh, summed up uh, a particular thing. Uh, you know, he's, he was he was a, he was a reporter, so he's got his columns. He's got this book, Black No More, which, by the way, in his in his autobiography, Black and Conservative, he doesn't talk about really. He says someone gave told me I should write a book about this, so I did. That's his one page. Whereas he did write another book. Um, called um satire of, of going to liberia right yeah, then, yeah and it yeah, yeah. and it was be, because there was slavery reported in liberia and he went to, for the paper to investigate it and he wrote this book uh about slavery in um liberia and i the title is slaves today a story of Liber liberia also published in 1931 i haven't read it um so i don't i don't think of schuyler as like necessarily an enduring literary writer. The, the memoir is very interesting in terms of its portrayal of Harlem and Garvey and where his anti-communism comes from um, and just the, that life. It, but it's certainly, I wouldn't, you know, if you're, if you're interested in, in that, in, you know, Black life and you know, in Harlem, you'll know, read it, but it's not none of, necessarily one of the better ones. So I would say that if you are interested in what Schuyler is saying, it would be better to read Ishmael Reed, Paul Beatty, or James McBride. Um, the other, in terms of that question about other people who are writing like him, I would say I'd give uh, credit as well 
to uh, writers like Nella Larson and Jesse Fossett who are writing about race as artificial. They, those um, women wrote novels about passing, Nella Larson's novels called Passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the, in those novels, you see that obviously the whole idea of race is also held up as a construct and as a fiction because it's that, you know, what do you do with the person who is classified as black in America, but who's as white, who is white? And so that theme of, you know, what exactly is blackness if people who look white can be black, like Walter White, who was head of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, so those novels are very uh, similar to this in that regard and holding up race as a fiction. I, and that, But in terms of the skewering, what do you call it? Is it um, the things you are not supposed to make fun of? <laughs> you yeah. are not supposed to make fun of race leaders who are fighting for racial justice. Uh, And he is definitely doing that. And so that, uh, you know, you could also read his columns, but really, I actually think this is the best thing he's written. Yeah, it'd be nice. I'll see, be nice if someone had put together a a kind of um, collected essays or something that pulled out some of his better essays, maybe from the Courier or the uh, Mercury, just Mm -hmm. to have all those in, in one place. But that um yeah they have i mean they've they've showed up you know negro art hokum the article in um 1926 from the nation is certainly worth reading um he also wrote an essay called um uh black people's gift to the world uh, is making white and you know and, and that's basically how black people make white supremacy possible right but um, yeah, no one has. And there's been a biography written by uh, about him. It is interesting. He is um, he is interesting because it's very hard to figure out what an, who an audience would be for George Schuyler, this man who calls himself a conservative um, and you know pals around with the John Birch Society, but is. Uh, very much committed to a cosmopolitan, diverse yeah. world. I mean, in, in just in terms of the kind of iconoclasm and yes, iconoclasm in in, in libertarian individualistic instincts, it reminded me a little bit of of Zora Neale Hurston and in, in places. Did they? Do you know if they knew one another at all? I don't know. I don't think they did. Although they might have. She interestingly, I don't think there's anyone like her in this book. No, I mean, uh, the closest thing I, I would say is Schuyler himself. I mean, there's no, Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, so. I mean, he probably, I mean, he doesn't mention her in the uh, autobiography. Okay, um, all right, well, Jennifer, this has been great fun. Thanks for coming on the, on the podcast and talking about Black No More. And um, yeah, and happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> this has been fun, thanks. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, And message us, please, to recommend guests or books. 
our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening and see you next time on Enduring Interest.